Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Do you need to change? Are you in need of transformation in your life? I'm not talking about changing circumstances or particular situations in your life. I'm sure we all have plenty of those, right? There's a certain circumstance I would like to change. There's a situation I would like to change. I'm talking about change of your inner person, change of your heart, change of thoughts, affections, Decisions that you make. I bet you can think of some things that you would like to change. Things that you wish would change. I mean, who doesn't need to change in some ways, after all? To pick some low-hanging fruit. Do you need to be more patient? That's one I hear quite a lot. I wish I was more patient. That's one area I wish I could grow in. I'm just struggling with impatience. It's a nice, respectable sin. At least often in our minds, isn't it? Yeah, you're not too bad. You just have to work on some patience. Who doesn't need patience after all? We might think of some areas of life where we see the need for change. But... Are we those who see the need for complete heart change, complete life transformation? To get to the point where we say, you know, it's not just one area of life that needs to change, perhaps. It's, it's my whole life that needs to change, my whole heart, my whole way of thinking. Everything that needs to change, I see, is a complete change in me. This kind of change can terrify people. I mean, it's easy to think, ah, yeah, change a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but to think, all of me needs to change? Everything needs to change? We've already read Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, but there's another verse that comes right after that, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. Here we see how deep the problem goes. We all were like sheep that had gone astray. It was not some compartment in our heart that's gone astray. It was the whole sheep that had gone astray. How have we gone astray? We've gone astray in sinfulness and disobedience, pride against God. Our sinfulness has invaded and affected every part of our person. And we couldn't even keep it to ourselves. Do you notice that there? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned ourselves to our own way. Well, yes, that's true. We've turned everyone else to their own way as well. That is the problem. We each think we have our own way. 
I'm t- we can think, well, we just need to find our own way. I just need to find my way. If I find my way, then everything will be lo- right in my life. But God's word says, when you have found your own way, you actually haven't found anything at all. Instead, you've gone astray. A sheep that has gone astray is a lost sheep. And if the problem is as bad as this, what is it going to take to change us? How will we be transformed? How will we no longer be those who are lost sheep, but how will we be those who are found sheep? And to what will we appeal? The worst thing that we can do is to throw people back upon themselves. To appeal to their, quote unquote, better nature. To give people confidence in their human goodness. Yet how often do we do this? People aren't really that bad. They're really good deep down. We just need to get them to tap into their goodness. To get them to know the better nature that is there. And how many even preachers today are trying to bring people into the church without requiring them to relinquish their pride. They're trying to help men avoid the conviction of sin. And how much even Christian literature is propagating confidence in human goodness. And what does John do in his gospel? The intent of John's gospel is not to throw people back on themselves and appeal to their quote-unquote better nature, but to betray them as they actually are. Portray them, not betray them. Portray them as they actually are. Radical, lost sinners. Yes, all we like sheep have gone astray. So what is going to remedy our radical lostness? What is it going to take to change us and transfer us out of such a desperate state as that? John is going to tell us what the remedy is in our verses this morning. And so where does he begin? You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. He begins with a witness. Can I get a witness? Yes. The witness to the light was sent by God. The witness to the light was sent by God. In a court of law, when a witness takes the witness stand, there's one thing and one thing only that we care about. We don't care about how they look. We don't care about their social status. We don't care about how much money they have or what kind of car they drive. What's the primary purpose of a witness? Tell the truth. That's what a witness is for. A witness that does not tell the truth is no witness at all. God provides witnesses concerning his son, Jesus Christ. The first witness highlighted in John's gospel is the forerunner to Christ's ministry, the one who would prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not the John who is the author of this book. In fact, this author never refers to himself by name in this gospel. This John here in verse 6 is the John we know to be John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. What do we know about one who is a witness like this. Well, this witness is committed, isn't he? 
he's not only committed to being a witness, but he's committed to the one for whom he is witnessing. He came to bear witness to the light. He came to tell the truth about Jesus. He is not to attract people to himself. He doesn't bear witness so that he might be known or so that he might be followed as a witness. He is to point people to the light. Why? Because here is the purpose of his witnessing about the light. So that all might believe through him. Not believing in him as the witness. Not primarily to say, thank you, witness. I believe your testimony is true. But it is the truthfulness of his witness that leads us away from him to believe in the one, the light of whom he is testifying about. John's witnessing was a means by which people would come to believe in the light. He is not the light. He is only a humble man, a servant. But John came not so that we would believe in him or in his testimony as it is, but that we would believe in Jesus. And all who have ever come to faith are dependent on John's opening proclamation of the identity and saving purposes of Jesus the Messiah. We, if you're a Christian here, we are all dependent upon John's witness. But what is so significant about John? There was a man, notice what it says, who was sent from God. John's significance is that he was assigned this specific task by God. God commissioned John with this calling upon his life to be a witness. John did not volunteer. He did not come with reluctance saying, well, someone's got to be a witness might as well be me. It was not John's ingenuity, John's intellect, or John's planning that made him an effective witness. It was rather that he had been sent by God to do this task. It was God's way, and it was God's plan. God was going to use John as a witness about the light so that all might believe in his son through the faithful and true testimony of John. God's remedy for our radical lostness began with a man sent by God to bear witness to the light that was shining in the darkness. He went where God wanted him to go. He said what God wanted him to say. He did what God wanted him to do. All with the intention of heralding the truth about the light, the truth about Jesus, so all would come to faith through him. John was not the light but he was a lamp. In fact, this is what John says later about uh, John the Baptist, or even what Jesus says about John the Baptist in John 5:35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. His witness was such that the true light, the light of Jesus, was shining. Through him. So he was this lamp, but it was Jesus' light that was shining through John. And in fact, as we think about John the Baptist as a witness, from the beginning, Christianity has been a campaign of witnessing. 
We're going to see that in the book of John. John the Baptist was a witness. God the Father was a witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was a witness to himself. God the Holy Spirit was a witness to Jesus. Jesus' miracles were a witness. Jesus' teachings were a witness to him. Jesus' disciples were a witness. In fact, some of the last words that Jesus says to his disciples in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. John's witnessing may have began the witnessing about the light, but the witnessing goes on in the lives of all of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. We are to be faithful witnesses. But how is our witnessing even possible? Well, it's even only possible through John, whom God sent as a means to begin the transformation of our hearts. So, the witness to the light was sent by God, but number two, the coming of the light is the ultimate disclosure of God. The coming of the light is the ultimate disclosure of God. While John was not the light, now we read about the true light, which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. John does this a few other times in his gospel. He designates things as true. So, there are true worshipers in the gospel of John. There is the true bread from heaven in the gospel of John. There is true food and true drink. There is the true vine and the true God. Why does John do this? Why does he put this qualifier? Why does he have to say the true light? This meaning of true has the idea of real or genuine or authentic, but even more, it has the idea as ultimate. So we might say he is the ultimate light, the ultimate light which gives light to everyone. What, what does that mean to be ultimate? It means he has final say and final authority. It means there's no one or nothing else to look to to find light. So to extrapolate this out, if Jesus is the true bread from heaven, there is no other bread to look for. There is no other bread that can satisfy. Jesus is the ultimate bread from heaven. He is the ultimate vine. There is no other vine for us to abide in to receive life. He is the true vine, so he is the ultimate vine. Here Jesus is the true light. He is the ultimate light, the only light that matters. There might be those who claim to be the light, who are false lights, but Jesus is not only the true light, he is the ultimate light, because as the ultimate light, he is the ultimate disclosure of God. This is not to say, let's parse this out here for a second, this is not to say he is the only disclosure of God. God has disclosed himself through creation. God has disclosed himself through the Old Testament. But what is John saying here? Jesus is the final word the ultimate disclosure of God. And this light has come into the world. The word, the source of light and life, is the transcendent word, but the word whose coming showed his imminence, his closeness, his nearness, his care, his love. But it was his light that gave light to everyone. 
There is an exclusiveness of the revelation that occurred in Jesus. He is the revealer of God for all men. And what does it mean that he gives light to everyone? In effect, this is what light does, doesn't it? Light shines. So what happens when the light shines on everyone, on every man, or on, on all of humanity, all of mankind? It exposes and reveals what's in man. We are shown for who we truly are. We are open and exposed. The light shines on all, and what does that light shining on all do? It forces a distinction. The light shines upon every man, whether we see it or not. And there will be those who will come to the light, but there will be those who love the darkness rather than the light. This light, which is coming into the world, was meant to be known. He was in the world, that is, in the incarnation. He is the agent of creation. Again, the world was made through him. What is this world that John talks about? He was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He uses this word frequently. In fact, verse you probably well know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. Here it stands for all of fallen humanity. This isn't necessarily all of creation like we might think about it, but it's particularly fallen humanity because look at what it says. Yet the world did not, what, know him. The world had a certain amount of capacity, right? They were, in that sense, he made the world, yet the world did not know him. So the world has this capacity to know. They can know something, in fact, the world should have known him. The light was among them. The light made them. The light caused them to exist. The world owes everything to this light, but it did not know him. That is, it rejected having any relationship with him. This knowing him is not a mere intellectual knowledge of facts. It's an intimate relational knowing. It's a knowing of relationship. The world did not know him. Not because he was a stranger to the world. Notice, what did the light do? The light comes into the world. The world did not know him because he kept himself at a distance, because he stayed away, because he was a stranger. No, the world did not know him because it was estranged from him. The world was estranged from him because of sin and darkness. And so, to not, to, to not know this light is to reject a relationship with him. They had the responsibility to know him. And notice John grounds the moral responsibility in the doctrine of creation. Right? So, the world was made through him. They're responsible there's a certain sense of this creation was, was part of this disclosure, yet the world did not know him. But 
they did not humble themselves in obedience and trust. And I think what these verses do here is they do the opposite of what is often advanced in the world, and that is this advancement of religious experience for self-discovery. That people want to have some kind of religious experience. I want to experience something, and that they think that through that religious experience is going to come this discovery, oftentimes this self-discovery. But the light did not come into the world for us to experience self-discovery. The light came into the world so that we might know God, so that we might have a relationship with this light, so we might run to the light and live in the light and walk in the light. The light does not turn us in on ourselves. It turns us to him and living in right relationship with him. Finally, number three. The, recep- the reception of the light is by the grace of God. The reception of the light is by the grace of God. Here we go from bad to worse. I mean, the world did not know him, this light, was coming into the world, the true light. But he even came to his own. In Jesus Christ, the word came not only to a world that had been made by him, he came to a people who thought they were God's own possession. That's the idea here. He came to his own, and that sense own is like he came to his own possession. He came to his own home. Yet his own people did not receive him. Surely the ones who had been waiting for him, the ones who had been expecting him, the ones who had been instructed over and over and over again about the coming of the Messiah Surely they would not reject him. The rejection of the word is the mysterious and culpable resistance of the creature against its creator, of humankind against its own redemption, and of the people of Israel against its God. His own people were the Jews, and we're going to see this fleshed out in the Gospel of John. How the Jews are rejecting Jesus. This verse sets up a central irony in the Gospel of John. He came to his own. He even came to his own. Yet they did not receive him. This was already anticipated in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, just turn back for a moment to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verses 2 and 3. I'm going to start in verse 1, actually. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, Here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So there, verse 1, I think this sense of 
these people who were not called by God's name, they were not of the nation of Israel. They were Gentiles. But then notice a change in verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me continually to my face, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I, (laughs) I am too holy for you. God had come to these people, to these rebellious people. And to think, the audacity to say, I'm too holy for you. I got it down. Or flip over to Jeremiah, one book over. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 25 and 26. Jeremiah 7, 25 and 26. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or inclined their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. God was persistently telling his people of the good news, telling his people of himself. Yet they were stubborn. They resisted. They did not listen. They stiffened their necks. How could they do such a thing? And I wonder if somehow we get lulled into the same way of thinking. When the gospel is persistently preached. Time and time and time again. Even to those in the church. (laughs) but we would not receive him? For all of the advantages that were afforded to the Jewish people, for them not to receive their Messiah, how much more scandalous when those people who think that they are in the church, when they think that they are God's own possession, are not. Because they have not received him. But there's good news. First, John fastened fastened our attention to a crisis. Here it is. The world did not know him. He even came to his own. They didn't receive him. What hope is there? Who is going to receive the light? Who is going to come to the light? There are those who will receive him. But to all who did receive him are apparently those 
who went against the current, who broke with the general pattern by which the world thinks, lives, and acts. And what does it mean then? There were those who did receive him. What does it mean to receive this one? What does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to believe in him. It means to cast yourself upon him. It means to trust him in everything that he is. And look at what it says here. To all who did receive him, okay, explain that. What does it mean to receive Jesus who believed in his name? Stop. Put the brakes on for a second. Because sometimes the most difficult thing for us to do is to read the Bible like we've never read it before, right? Like to read the Gospel of John like we've never read John before. So think about what John is saying here. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Does that sound weird to you? Do you catch it? Here's the question. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Mm, Yes. What name? What name are we talking about? What name have you given us, John? We're only here, what, 12 verses in, believe in his name? Whose name? Who is this one that we are to believe in? Now, we might want to connect the dots real quick. I know, I know, I know. It's Jesus' name. Yes, that is true. But as of yet, John has not mentioned the name Jesus. What is John telling us here? I think what John is doing is seeing, yes, we are those who are to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, but this name is greater than any name you could ever imagine. This name is not just a designation for a person so that we know who that person is. This name that we are talking about is the encapsulation of all of who this person is. But even more than that, what John is doing, I think, is he's saying this name is the name. Do you remember back in the Old Testament? Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do you remember when the Lord heralded his name on Mount Sinai? The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful Abounding in steadfast love. Do you remember when the priests were to put the name of the Lord on the people by saying, the Lord bless you and keep you? So what do I think John is doing? I think he's saying, yes, believe in Jesus' name, but this name is the divine name. This is not merely a man. This is God. This is deity that you are to believe in. This is the Son of God. Believe in this name. He is the object of our faith. We do not believe in Jesus to be our example. Jesus is the one in whom we believe in. He's not the one that we look to to say, well, this is what faith looks like. No, our faith is in Jesus Christ and in what he's done and in who he is as the son of God. And by believing in his name, believing in that divine name, What happens? We stop relying on our own merits and achievements and we put all of our trust in Christ instead. 
To receive him means to place one's faith in him, to yield one's allegiance to him, and thus, in the most practical manner, to acknowledge his claims. Receiving Christ is essential to salvation. And look at what Jesus does then. For all who receive him, who believe in his name, he, again, I think this is referring to the true light, or the word, or Jesus, we could say, he gave the right for those to become children of God. Jesus is the one who grants access to God's family. All people are not automatically God's children. Only those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus to save them from their sins are granted the privilege to be the child, to be a child of God. And no one becomes a child of God except by God's Son. And this is something that we could never accomplish on our own. Only the one who is the ultimate disclosure of God himself could grant us access and induct us into the heavenly realm of those being God's children. They are those who have experienced a rebirth. So who are these children of God? What do we know about them? So these ones, they've believed in his name. He has given them the right to become children of God. What do we know about these ones? They were born. They were born. John's not talking about a physical birth here. He's talking about a spiritual birth, a new birth a birth that he will talk about again or that Jesus will talk about with Nicodemus as being born again. What does this birth look like? How do these people come to be? How is it that they received and believed in the name, in his name? How is it that they were granted the right to become children of God? Well, first, the negative. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. This is not a physical birth. It's not a right or a privilege that one claims by ethical descent. It's not what one claims by their own force, determination, decision, or human will. No, who is it that's born of God? It's those whom he calls. We did not initiate the birth. We did not cause the birth. We are those born of God because it is of God's gracious gift. Not because of anything that we have done. It's not our human will that decided it to make it happen. God was not obliged to give us new birth or make us his children because we wanted it. All human initiative is ruled out. Faith and belief in Jesus Christ is a miracle. 
This is how our lives are completely transformed by God from beginning to end. Wasn't by blood, by the will of flesh, or by the will of man. Those who are children of God, those who believe in Jesus, are born of God because it's God's work in them. Our lives are transformed, not by keeping a list of commands, but by a piece of news, an announcement, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who came into the world, who lived a sinless life, perfectly obeying the will of God the Father, who died the substitutionary death in our place, who bore our sin, and so undergoing the judgment and wrath of God, which our sins rightly deserve, he died to save us. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, showing that his sacrifice made complete atonement for our sin, forgiving all of our sin and reconciling us to God. Then he ascended into heaven, where now he is seated at God's right hand, granting salvation to all who call on him by faith and interceding before God's throne on behalf of those who are his. And now the call goes out with this piece of news. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him alone to save you from your sins. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion appeals to man's will. Do something. You're pretty good anyways. Clean yourself up. You have confidence in your goodness, in your achievements, and in what you can accomplish to change and transform yourself. While Christianity does not appeal to any of that for salvation because man's will does not determine salvation. Christianity announces first a gracious act of God whereby he saves sinners. Whereby he makes us born of him, born of a, from above, born again as new creations in Christ Jesus. You are radically lost on your own, but take heart. There is a gracious God and Savior who grants salvation to all who repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in him, who receive it. Who don't do it, you receive what God has done. You receive the one whom God has sent. You embrace that one and you look to him as the one who has done the work of salvation that you need in your life. Father, let us turn away, turn away from thinking that salvation is by human initiative, that it's by the will of man. We're not born by the will of man, we're, we're born by God, born of you, what you have done to save us. So thank you. Thank you for what you have done. I pray that we would have eyes that would continually be open to the greatness of that miracle. The greatness of the work of salvation. The grace. The grace of what we could never do for ourselves. Christ has done for us on our behalf. That we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus.
pray we would all be clothed in that righteousness to hear if there's someone who's not, they would receive Jesus today. That they would be granted the right access, the privilege to be a child of God, brought into your family. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.